Please turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44. This evening we're looking particularly at verse 6 of chapter 44 to the end, but let's read the whole chapter together. Isaiah chapter 44. This is God's word. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, The Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. 
and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins." who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Amen and may God bless to us that reading from his word and to his name be the praise. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? <coughs> our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe that it is the living word of the living God. And we ask, Lord, that you would graciously grant that it may live in our experience this evening. Grant us ears to hear hearts to understand and wills to obey for your glory's sake. Amen. What kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you, do I believe in? That's the question which this passage presents to us this evening. It invites all of us to ask ourselves that question. 
Over the past few Sundays, we've seen how the prophet Isaiah, who lived in the middle of the 8th century BC, sought to prepare the people of Israel for the challenges that were going to come their way some 200 years later when they were exiled to faraway Babylon. The Israelites were God's special people. Many, many years before, God had appeared to their ancestor Abraham and had promised to make him the father of a great nation. In due course, God miraculously rescued Abram's descendants from slavery in Egypt. He forged them into a nation and enabled them to conquer the land of Canaan and make it their own. Canaan was a good land and the Israelites enjoyed living there. Under kings like David and Solomon, the nation prospered. And in the capital city of Jerusalem was built the temple, the physical symbol of God's presence among his people. The Israelites were God's people living in the land he had given them and enjoying his blessing. Imagine their shock when the Babylonians came along and conquered their land, destroyed their temple, and carried many of them off to Babylon. The situation was further complicated by the fact that by this time, Persia was beginning to flex its muscles and was beginning to pose a new threat. The world was in turmoil, and God's people were far away in exile. Isaiah's prophecy was written to prepare the Israelites for this situation and to assure them that despite appearances, God wasn't finished with them. He had glorious purposes for them and through them for the whole world. As we read this chapter, you would have seen that verses 1 to 8 and verses 21 to 28 are poetry, while the verses in between from verse 9 to verse 20 are prose. The difference in literary form reflects a difference of theme. The poetic sections focus on the character of God, while the prose section in the middle is all about idolatry. We shall look at the middle section first under the heading, The Futility of Idolatry. The Futility of Idolatry. Why do you think Isaiah has so much to say in this passage about idolatry? I suspect it's because exile in Babylon was bound to undermine the Israelites' confidence in the God of their fathers? Why had he allowed the Babylonians to capture their land? Why had he let the temple be destroyed? Why were they as the people of God in exile? Was it because God was powerless to do anything? Or was it because he simply didn't care? 
it would be difficult for the Israelites to reconcile their circumstances with their belief in a gracious, all-powerful God. And of course, in Babylon, the Israelites would be surrounded by many gods. They would be surrounded by idols. The gods of the Babylonians were very visible. The non-visibility of the Israelites' God could make things even more difficult for them. In that kind of culture, it wasn't easy to worship a God who couldn't be seen. Did he exist? The Babylonian gods at least could be seen. Perhaps, after all, they were the real deal. But Isaiah is having none of it. He doesn't mince his words. Look at his uncompromising statement in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Isaiah points out that idols are made by human hands, they're man made. It follows that they cannot therefore be better than their creators. And they are nothing. All who fashion idols are nothing. And Isaiah's other point is that idols do not profit. They do no one any good. They're totally ineffective. They're useless. In the following verses, Isaiah goes on to expand on these two basic ideas. In verse 12, he highlights the limitations of those who make idols. He takes the example of an ironsmith. An ironsmith demonstrates considerable skill. He has to take a cutting tool and work it over the hot coals. And he needs to be strong to hammer the iron into shape. But for all his skill and strength, he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The ironsmith is no superman. He's no different from anyone else. He needs to eat and drink to keep his strength up. Well, says Isaiah, if the man who makes the idol has limitations like that, surely the idol he makes must be even more limited. Then in verses 13 to 17, Isaiah points out how an idol cannot possibly have any value. Here he takes the example of a carpenter. The carpenter too is very skillful. He takes a piece of wood and carves it into the shape of a man. He can turn the wood into the figure of a human being. But the wood he uses isn't special in any way. It comes from a tree which, like every other tree, has depended on the rain for its growth. Wood from the same tree could well end up being used as fuel for a fire. Look with me, please, at verses 15 to 17. The carpenter takes a part of the wood and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. 
he makes it an idol and falls down before of it be before it half of it he burns in the fire over the half he eats meat he roasts it and is satisfied also he warms himself and says aha i am warm i've seen the fire and the rest of it he makes into a god his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Isaiah's sarcasm is obvious. The wood that's used to make the idol is no different from the wood that fuels the fire. An idol, says Isaiah, is simply an artifact. There's nothing special about the one who makes it, And there's nothing special about the material of which it's made. It follows then that idols are profitable for nothing. They do no one any good. So why do people who worship idols not see that? Why can't they grasp that idols are worthless? The underlying reason, Isaiah says, is that they neither see nor know, verse 9. They know not, nor do they discern, verse 18. A deluded heart has led them astray, verse 20. People worship idols because they're blind and ignorant, because they've no spiritual discernment, because they're deceived. And how has this come about? Look at what Isaiah says in verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Who is this he? Well, it's possible that Isaiah is referring to the idol. He's making the point that idol worship desensitizes the worshiper. But I think it's more likely that the he he refers to is God. It's God who shuts eyes and hearts. You may find that shocking. In a sense, it is. But the fact is that spiritual blindness has been part of God's judgment on sin ever since Adam and Eve chose to go their own way rather than God's. In the Garden of Eden. By nature, we are all spiritually blind. Our spiritual blindness is a symptom of our being sinners who are cut off from the life of God. Let me share with you an illustration which I find helpful. I hope you will find it helpful too. I'm told that if a diver is suffering from decompression sickness, his judgment is likely to be affected, even although he's not aware of it. Ask him to hold up his right hand, and the chances are that he'll hold up his left. He thinks that he can think clearly, but the fact is he can't. His impaired judgment is itself a symptom of his sickness. In a similar way, we may think that there's nothing wrong with our ability to see spiritual realities. But the fact is, our spiritual judgment is impaired because we are sinners 
by nature and by practice. It's part of how we are as sinners under the judgment of God. We need God to open our eyes. I recently heard a story about an Anglican vicar who was invited to give a gospel talk at a boys' school. This was some 30-odd years ago. After the talk, he was in the staff room, and one of the masters came up and said, that was a very good talk. It's the sort of thing the boys need to hear. It's, it's not the sort of thing that I'm interested in. I've grown out of that kind of thing. The vicar looked the master in the eye and said, the problem isn't that you've grown out of it. The problem is that you're blind. And until God opens your eyes, the gospel will mean nothing to you at all. Well, that's the problem we all have. And that's why, instead of worshipping the only true God, we so often find ourselves worshipping idols, which are worthless, which are ineffective, which can do us no good. For let's make no mistake, idolatry is still an issue for us in our 21st century world. Of course, there are different kinds of idolatry. Some people still invest spiritual significance in material things. Think of the St. Christopher charms that some folk carry around with them. Think too of the crucifixes, images, statues and icons which can become the focus of people's devotion. But idolatry can take subtler forms. Idols may be mental rather than metal. Anything that takes a place which God demands and deserves in our lives effectively becomes for us an idol. And even good things can become God things. It may be our work. It may be sport. It may be the pursuit of pleasure. It may even be our family. We need to ask what comes first in our lives. Your idol may not be mine and mine may not be yours, but whatever it is, we need to rec recognize its futility. We need to repent and give God his rightful place. There can even be idolatry in churches which wouldn't dream of putting a crucifix up on the wall. The point has often been made that in the Bible, God made man in his image. But the ancient Greeks and Romans made their gods in their own image. Their gods had the same foibles and weaknesses which they had themselves. And consequently, the Greeks and Romans felt they didn't have to try all that hard to live up to the standards of their gods. Well, something similar has happened in the church in the Western world over the past 100, 200 years. Many people who claim to be Christians 
have reinterpreted the biblical data about God in the light of what they regard as the modern understanding of things. And they've come up with a God who sets few moral boundaries, a God who loves everyone and everything, a God who is infinitely tolerant. I think it was the theologian Richard Niebuhr who described the social gospel of his day uh, in the early 20th century in the following terms. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. A God like that may be very comfortable to live with, but he is as much a product of human imagination as is any idol made of wood or metal. And such a God is equally impotent. impotent. Idolatry isn't someone else's problem. We can all have our personal idols. We all need to pray with the hymn writer William Cooper, the dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. The futility of idolatry. But in the surrounding verses in this chapter, Isaiah reminds the Israelites of what makes their God different. So let's consider in the time that's left the glory of God. We're contrasting the futility of idolatry with the glory of God. I'd like to highlight four things Isaiah says in particular. Number one, the Israelites' God is unique. Besides me, he says in verse 6, there is no God. And then in verse 8 he says, is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. The God of Israel is absolutely unique. There's no God like him. There's no God who can begin to measure up to him. He's the one true God. He's in a class of his own. That's because he has always existed, verse 6. I am the first and I am the last. It's also because he is the one and only creator, verse 24. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Israel's God claimed to be a unique God. And that claim to uniqueness is a startling claim, not least in our modern world, in our postmodern world, where one religion is assumed to have as much validity as another. You believe one thing, I believe another, we're both right. Well, God's claim to be unique cuts across all that. God will have no truck with pick and mix religion. He demands total allegiance. When his son Jesus came into the world, 
He claimed to be the only way to this unique God. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The God of the Bible is unique. That's something which can be very hard to accept. But it is fundamental to biblical religion. And can I ask you this evening, do you recognize this God's uniqueness? The Israelites' God is unique. Number two, the Israelites' God is relational. Notice how he's described in verse 6. He's described as the Lord, the King of Israel. God is the Lord. You'll see that the word Lord is in capital letters. That means that the word represents the Hebrew name Yahweh, the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. God's name assured Moses and the Israelites that he was unchanging, not least in his commitment to them as his people. I am who I am. His people could rely on him. In verse 2, Isaiah explicitly assures the people of Israel that their God will help them. And in verse 21, he assures them that he will not forget them. God is the Lord. Isaiah also reminds the Israelites that God is their king. They're privileged to live under his kingly authority. And the interesting thing is that he's their king, even when they're in exile. Even there he's providing for them and looking after their interests. But with privilege comes responsibility. As king, God calls the shots. He lays down the law, literally, he determines how his people should live. You see, the idols make no demands. They're under our control. But this relational God, he takes the initiative. He makes demands. A constant theme in this chapter is that the Israelites are God's chosen people. Verse 1 speaks of Israel, whom I have chosen. Verse 3 of Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. God's choice of Israel goes back beyond even their existence as a nation. He made them and formed them from the womb, he says in verse 2. I formed you, he says in verse 21. God chose Israel in eternity past. He set his love on them. And nothing would or could deflect him from securing their highest good. How do these things resonate with us as New Testament Christians? Well, they should resonate with us because 
If we are Christians, we are members of the New Testament people of God. God's people are no longer restricted largely to one ethnic group. They're now a worldwide people. Anyone who trusts in Jesus is a member of God's covenant family. And if we are members of his family, we can be sure that God loves us and is unwavering in his commitment to us. We can be sure that he will never let us go, never let us down. God is our king. We can live securely and confidently because we know that he has our interests at heart. In the words of an old hymn, how good is the God we adore our faithful, unchangeable friend. His love is as great as his power and knows neither measure nor end. By the same token, we are his servants. We are under the law of Christ. Man-made idols are under our control. They make no demands. But our relational God is different. With him, we have a real relationship. He takes the initiative. He makes demands. He calls the shots. But we respond in a relationship of love. The Israelites' God is unique. He's relational. Number three, the Israelites' God is a redeemer. The Israelites' God is a redeemer. Have you noticed how repeatedly the passage refers to God as redeemer? Verse 6, he is Israel's redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your redeemer. Verse 23, the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Isaiah is reminding the Israelites that God is a rescuer. He rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Indeed, it was that rescue which effectively constituted them as a nation. He rescued them not because they deserved it or because they had any claim on his kindness in and of themselves. He rescued them simply because he chose to do so. If you remember, God sent a number of plagues on the Egyptians before Pharaoh eventually let the people of Israel go. It was only in response to the 10th plague that the Israelites finally got away. That plague involved the death of the firstborn in each family. That night there was a death in each household in Egypt. In each Egyptian household, the firstborn died. In each Israelite household, there was also a death. But it was a substitutionary death. It was the substitutionary death of a sheep or a goat. Each Israelite family had been asked to kill a sheep or goat and to daub its blood around the door of their house. This was an object lesson for the Israelites, that they were just as deserving of God's judgment as the Egyptians were. 
but God was graciously averting his judgment from them. God had redeemed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And Isaiah wanted them to know that God would redeem them from exile in Babylon. It was their sin which was responsible for their being in Babylon in the first place. They were there under God's judgment. They'd refused to honour God and live in accordance with his law. But God hadn't given up on them. And he was going to rescue them from exile. Look at the words of verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. I was out walking in the Aberdeenshire countryside this past week. At times the clouds were low and the mists were swirling around, but it was amazing how quickly the clouds and mist disappeared when the sun came out. Well, that's the sort of picture Isaiah has in mind here. God has removed the sins of his people. Isaiah assures the people of Israel that God has blotted out their transgressions like a cloud and their sins like mist because he is a redeeming, rescuing God. If we are Christians, we too have been redeemed. We have been rescued from slavery to sin. And our redemption has been secured at the cost of a death too. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He took God's judgment on our sin upon himself. He was our substitute. Through his death on the cross, Sin's penalty was paid and we can go free. Sin's penalty has been paid. Sin's power has been broken. And one day we shall be delivered from sin's very presence. But we need to act on the offer of redemption which is made to us in Jesus. Just as there was something the Israelites needed to do in response to God's invitation. In verse 22, God says to them, Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God was taking the initiative, but they needed to respond. We too need to come to the Lord in repentance and faith. Perhaps you need to do that this evening for the first time. Perhaps it's something you need to do again because you're conscious that you've wandered away from the Lord and you no longer enjoy close fellowship with him. But the good news is that our God is a redeemer. The Israelites' God is unique. He's relational. He's a redeemer. The final thing I'd like to highlight is simply this. The Israelites' God is powerful. The Israelites' God is powerful. Isaiah makes the point that idols are totally ineffective. But that's not how the unique, relational, redeeming God of Israel is. 
He can do anything he chooses. Nothing is too hard for him. Not only did he make everything, he is in total control. Look at what he says in verse 25. What Isaiah says, he frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. He turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. But there's more. Because their God is powerful, the people of Israel can trust him to keep his promises. And no doubt the Israelites in Babylon needed that assurance as as they reflected on the wonderful prospect held out by Isaiah of eventual restoration to their own land. Look with me at what the Lord says through the prophet in verse 26. I am the Lord who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Isaiah's prophecy wasn't empty words. What he said was backed up by the power and will of Almighty God. And that's an assurance we need so often that God keeps his promises. As Christians, we need to be reminded that Jesus has all power in heaven and on earth. He is head over all things for his church because he's powerful He's able to keep his promises. What he says, he will do. So where do you stand this evening? What kind of God do you believe in? Are you still clinging to man-made and ineffective idols? Or will you turn to the unique, relational, redeeming and powerful God of the Bible? Isaiah reminds us that idolatry is futile. But God is glorious. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, we cannot begin to understand your greatness. But we thank you for what we can grasp, even although in some ways it blows our minds. Lord, we pray that we may come to you, the living and true God, through your Son, the Lord Jesus. May we know his redemption, making us acceptable in your sight. May we know forgiveness through him. So may we come under your kingly rule and live in the good of it, knowing that you are the Lord, the God who is committed to us, who will never let us go and who will never let us down. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.